0: This talk, uh, as you can see, there, rights, freedoms and obligations." seems to me the topic that Paul is dealing with, generally, in these chapters, and I've subtitled it, "How to Avoid Superspirituality." I think superspirituality was a term coined by Francis Schaeffer, I believe. Um, if you haven't come across it, I'll uh, define it briefly uh, shortly. Uh, But I couldn't resist putting up this rhyme. This was uh, written many years ago, actually. but It seems remarkably modern, doesn't it? If only the good were the clever, if only the clever were good, the world would be better than ever we thought that it possibly could. But alas, it is seldom or never that either behave as they should, for the good are so harsh to the clever, and the clever so rude to the good. It's all too true, isn't it? (laughs) We all have rights, don't we? Even animals have rights. Why do I say that? Well, Paul quotes one here, doesn't he, from the uh, Book of Deuteronomy. He says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Even an ox has the right not to be treated cruelly by by the farmer, to be allowed to um, eat uh, as it works. It's not a machine, it shouldn't be treated as such. And as Paul says, if that's even true of oxen, how much more is that true for humans? but every society has a tension, doesn't it, between the rights of the individual and the individual's responsibility to the community um, that's a tension that our country is very conscious of at the moment I think If you go too far in one direction and you get totalitarianism, the government tells everybody what to do and nobody has any rights at all to go far in the other direction and we get moral anarchy people just do what they want to do and don't care about anybody else and um, the community actually ceased to exist in any real sense at all. So we find our politicians are now so scared of infringing rights that they refuse to admit any duty to behave responsibility, responsibly and then they have to legislate to stop the community disintegrating and so all our rights are actually lost. Uh, rights of free speech and so on are rapidly being eroded. Um, because there is a, a, an issue there if you won't uh, talk about people's responsibilities as well as their rights that you're bound to run into trouble but this is true if the, in the church also if the church starts telling people what they should wear and what they should eat and who they should marry or where to go or if to go on holiday well we have a word don't we for that sort of church we call it a cult and rightly so The church shouldn't have such uh, total control over our lives. But we saw in the previous chapter, in chapter 7, which was on sexual morality, um, that if the church tolerates any behaviour in the name of Christian freedom, then the community is on a fast track to destruction. Sorry, I meant to move the slide on. Uh, Paul has some comments on female modesty in chapter 11 in fact but we won't go into that now. The the Kingdom of God is meant to be the model of the perfect society the the spiritual nation and to do that, to be that it does have to resolve this tension between um, the uh, rights of the individual and the responsibilities to the community and to the king But uh, Paul actually points out that when we do this, we actually come up against another tension as well. He says, now, this is 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 3, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. (coughs) The argument that's being used here runs more or less like this. It says that um, idols are just made of wood, aren't they? I mean, the whole point about an idol, all the way through the Old Testament, it says that, well, they've got eyes and mouth and feet, but they don't see or speak or run. Idols can't do anything, they're just made of wood. So if you offer food to an idol, is the food contaminated by the idol? Well, no, because the idol can't do anything. So there's no harm in eating it, is there? That's the argument, and in fact, Um, Paul doesn't dismiss this out of hand he says in verse 4 we know that an idol is nothing at all in in the world and that there is no God but one so he says yes there is some weight behind this argument but he says that's not the whole story because there's the effect on fellow believers and indeed though he doesn't say this there's also implicitly the effect on our own conscience as well Um, because um, lost the actual verse now uh, yeah it wasn't that one I was actually looking for it says that to the it says that the food for that brother is, is defiled but never mind so although the idol itself doesn't defile the food the conscience of the weak conscience of another believer it can be defiled for them because they think of it as being issued to idols so, yeah, yeah, verse 7, well verse 7 is what I was looking at. at, the end of verse 7 he said it is defiled, because their conscience is weak, the food is defiled by the idol, even though the idol itself doesn't do anything at all, it's just a bit of wood. So it's not as simple as that, and Paul also raises this tension between knowledge and love. Um, Um, But you have to be careful here, of course, when Paul's talking about knowledge. He is talking particularly about the sort of knowledge, that Gnosticism, which was the main problem for the Corinthians. Knowledge which is esoteric knowledge, knowledge that is denied to other believers who are therefore second class. Um, Paul is not actually against knowledge. In fact, he talks here in 9 verse 1. He says, uh, not 9 verse 1. um, But he says, you know, he talks about things we know Uh, later on so uh, we do know things of course and knowledge is important in fact he says in um, Romans 10 verse 2 he says the Israelites are zealous for God but their zeal is not based on knowledge if you have not zeal that's not based on knowledge then it's fanaticism so it's not that Paul is anti-knowledge it's the particular type of knowledge and way of using knowledge that um, is being talked about here And and so Francis Schaeffer actually coined that term, super-spirituality. And what I think he meant by it was those attitudes and activities were used to make us look more spiritual than fellow believers, to say that we're the super-Christians. Now, maybe not even do that deliberately, but actually to do it implicitly, which in a sense is almost worse, to... um, Make, uh, to think that by involving in some particular activity or having some particular knowledge then we're being super spiritual and more spiritual than the rest of the people of God. Um, I, I think Schaefer was talkly, talking particularly about the gifts, abuse of the gifts of the Spirit which Paul does go on to talk about later. But it, it, of course you can do it in all sorts of other ways, the Corinthians were doing it by knowledge and we can do that, can't we? We can parade our knowledge of some obscure, not very important item of um, matter of doctrine that somehow makes us more makes us superior, more spiritual than those who don't really understand that stuff. Or indeed, you can even do it by praying. I mean, Jesus warned about those who um, those pagans who think that praying is a matter of lots of words, didn't he? He says, uh, you know, you, you can. I, timed it, you can recite the Lord's Prayer in less than 30 seconds um, the, as we did this morning it's not the, you know, you can appear to be super spiritual can't you by uh, having very long prayer meetings and of course for extra brownie points you hold them before six o'clock in the morning <laughs> and then, then it's doubly spiritual then now of course don't get me wrong, of course there are times when the church needs to do exactly that To to spend long hours in prayer sometimes and indeed the best time to do it may be at six o'clock in the morning before the the affair the world has woken up but it becomes super spiritual when we think that somehow by doing that God's more likely to listen to us if we pray for three hours starting at four o'clock than if we pray for one hour starting at eleven o'clock it ain't so and. Jesus said, "You know, God knows what you want before you start praying. Prayer is almost for your benefit rather than God's. So that you know what God wants, and uh, but if, I mean, it does say more than that. The prayer itself is part of God carrying out His will. But but um, yeah, we can even use things like prayer, which of course are very important in the Christian life, to make ourselves seem super spiritual. I once boycotted. It was only meant as a joke, actually." But uh, I was once at a meeting when um, they said it was going to be a seven o'clock prayer meeting for the extra spiritual. And it was only meant as a joke, of course, but I I actually boycotted it for that reason. (laughs) Um, Now, but actually, so that's the first question actually. Um, Do we use knowledge or love? Now, Paul is actually going to deal with this in much much more detail later in 1 Corinthians 13, famous passage on love. So um, let's just take his lead and make a few immediate observations on this rather than go too deeply into this tension. But we have to acknowledge there is this tension here. So Paul is certainly not decrying reasoning. Um, I mean, I've already said that our zeal has to be according to knowledge, otherwise it becomes fanaticism. Um, And in fact, Paul's whole approach to these questions here, both of the food offered to idols and in Chapter 9 of how much we pay our preachers, is uh, based on rational analysis, isn't it? He's not saying, you know, I I tell you this is the way it works, you better believe it. He doesn't do that. He says, no, just guys, think this through. Just think it through properly. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't be prejudiced, as we might say. Just think it through. And then, um, and so he does say that we, we know an idol is nothing at all in the world and there is no God but one and similarly in chapter 9 it's a reasoned argument but he goes on to say that his, the analysis that he's doing must be based on love and the need to build up the community so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge so perhaps just to say, Paul deals with this in much more detail in 1 Corinthians 13 but perhaps we could just summarise that here by saying what we need is not knowledge or love But knowledge that is tempered by love, and love that is guided by reason. Oh dear! I just realised I've forgotten to mark when I change slides in my notes. Some of it from now on, anyway. That's slide three. I think I need to change now. Come on. So what is the key issue here? What what should we be focusing on? Is it it freedom or is it it responsibility to the community? So um, I thought, well actually, probably food offered to idols is not too much of a problem in the UK. It Might be if you lived in India or various other places in the Far East, but probably not here. (coughs) So what other issues, similar issues, might there be that are um, of similar, perhaps, importance? Well, one of them, of course, is raised by Paul in chapter 9. How much, how do we pay our preachers, or do we pay our preachers? But let me think about one or two other things that we might come up against. Um, well, the, the three I thought you might um, think about is um, alcoholic drink, cosmetic products, and good food. Now, all those things are things that are commended by God. In fact, they're all commended by God in one verse. Um, Psalm 104 verse 15 which says the following you can look it up if you like but I'll read it, it's very short he talks about, well it's a whole list of the, of the uh, gifts that God gives to man but in verse 15 of Psalm 104 it says wine that gladdens the heart of man oil to make his face shine, so you ladies are all white with uh, rubbing, rubbing oil into your face um, and bread that sustains his heart so he's not just talking about a, you know, a crumb of crusty bread he's obviously talking about something that sustains and gladdens the heart he's talking about good food and all these things he's saying are God gifts that God has given but they're all capable of abuse and so they need to be handled with care how do we go about this? So is it more important to assert the freedom to enjoy the things God has given or is it better to Err, on the side of caution, and to avoid anything open to open to abuse. Now, the trouble is, of course, that the church has zigzagged between these two opinions throughout its history, and certainly in the 20th century. You know, you get one one point. You know, Christians had to wear a suit, don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, don't go to the pictures, wear a suit, and you're all right. Um, and then, you know, you think it then sort of goes to the other extreme of, of a ridiculous libertarianism. Um, so what is what should we be focusing on? Well actually Paul's quite clear on this. He says actually we need to do both. But we need to emphasize both freedom and responsibility. Because if you don't do I- if you fail to do either you have s- there are serious consequences. And so in chapter 9 verse 5 he says he will absolutely defend the right of Peter to travel with his family. He says he will absolutely de- de- uh, defend the right of the apostles on preachers to earn their living from the gospel. In fact that's a fundamental freedom that applies to men and even oxen. That you should um, profit from your own labour. And he gives lots of examples, doesn't he? Because he um, does a soldier serve at his own expense? Do you plant a vineyard and not eat of the grapes? Do you tend a flock and not drink of the milk? And he says, doesn't the law say the same thing? You shouldn't even muddle, muzzle an ox when it's treading out the vineyard, or uh, treading out the um, grain. Grain, grain it is, isn't it? When the ox when it's treading out the grain. We are created in the image of God and we are created to work, to subdue the earth. And um, as part of that we're expected to profit from that labour. This is a fundamental right, human right. I think it is one of the human rights, the right to have work, and and that's true, it is. We should have the right to have work and to profit from the work we do, otherwise we are slaves. It's only a slave that doesn't profit from his own labour. And that's what God did, doesn't it? It says God saw everything that he was made and behold, it was very good. And the seventh day God ended his work it, which he made and rested on the seventh day from all his work which he'd made. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. because in that he had rested from his work, his work which God cre- created and made. So God sat down and said, yes, that's good, I've done a good job there. And I'm going to take satisfaction and, and pleasure from that job. He was expecting a reward from the work he'd done. God himself does that. He says, that's the work I've done and I'm going to take pleasure and profit from it. But equally, there may be reasons not to exercise that right because Paul doesn't want the Gospel to be valued in pounds and pence. Actually, it's catch-22, isn't it? Remember catch-22? The only way you can get... um, removed from a combat zone is if you can prove you're insane but the desire to be mo- removed from the combat zone is very strong evidence of your sanity that was catch 22 <laughs> the whole book about that of course but you can't um, it's the same here isn't it we don't want that the, the gospel is given freely it's something that God gives and we don't want to charge pounds, shillings and pence for it or drachmas and denarii or whatever they the local currency was it should be given freely but at the same t- on the other hand of course if you offer it freely that seems to imply that it isn't worth anything if it's, uh, if, it's to be off- if it is a, a, a work of God to be labouring in the gospel then the labourer should, pre- should profit from it it's a thing that we always struggle with in the de- deacons and church meetings how much do we pray, pay the uh, fill and uh, it's perhaps right that we should struggle with it because we need to remember that we shouldn't even muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain That it's an absolute right to profit to live by the gospel if, they, if he preaches the gospel it's an absolute right and yet the gospel has to be given freely so Yeah. <coughs> 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 sorry I didn't mean to go let's go back again yeah so what Paul says here is that in fact you have to assert both you have to assert the freedoms that we have in Christ and you have to assert Christian freedom Uh, because if not it's to turn us into slaves and make nonsense of the kingdom of God yet at the same time you don't have to exercise that freedom this is where I think we we differ from the world isn't it because implicit in everything the world says about freedom is not that you have this right but you actually have to exercise it Um, except when it comes to voting for some reason you have a right to vote but uh, you don't have to exercise that but everything else you do um, that's, the, that's implicit isn't it? it it's implicit in a lot of feminist logic it's implicit, implicit in a lot of egalitarian arguments that you have these rights and therefore you jolly well better make use of them but Paul says no, someone, somehow, sometimes it's better not to make use of them and he gives this example if anyone with a weak conscience sees you of this knowledge eating in an idol's temple won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience you sin against Christ therefore if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall and in fact, both parties here really are indulging in that spiritual one-upmanship, that super-spirituality. One is saying, um, uh, one is saying, look, I'm, you know, I'm strong, I don't have to worry about food or to idols, I can eat this, it won't do me any harm at all, look how, look how spiritually strong I am. And the other is saying, no, no, you're, you're being licentious, you're being idolatrous. And I'm judging you because of that both is judging each other, both of them are judging each other actually aren't they? and um, that is what Paul said we shouldn't be doing but he does say that if I cause my brother to fall into sin I'll never eat meat again not just I won't eat meat that's been offered to idols I won't, I'll turn vegetarian if that's going to stop my brother falling into sin um, we had a long discussion when Sarah and Oddbier were here about the use of alcohol actually um, and odd by a note to how di- different it is in the West, he says that you know in, in Switzerland Sarah would drink with a, a glass of wine with a family meal and similarly it's true in this country people uh, drink a glass of wine and um, it doesn't necessarily lead to alcoholism um, but he says that there is such a problem with alcoholism in um, Mongolian society even within the Mongolian churches that when people have said, well, you know, people have said, well, you know, the Bible does say that wine governs the heart of men, we can't can't ban it, and yet uh, there's been such a problem with alcoholism, even within the Mongolian churches, that they have decided that when they're in Mongolia, they're teetotal, and that's not hypocrisy, it's saying we have a freedom to drink wine, but we're going to give it up, because we don't want to trump that much greater freedom that the brethren have to follow Christ. And if we put something in their way we'll give up wine or meat or whatever it is altogether. But at the same time we won't go around judging people who who say that it is okay to drink a glass of wine or to eat meat. Um, But sometimes it is important to assert our freedoms because otherwise we can open ourselves to unreasonable judgments. And we can misrepresent the gospel, and that's what's happening to Paul, isn't it? He's saying, "Well, actually, your gospel can't be. You're you're preaching the gospel free, so it can't be worth much. Clearly, you think you can't. You know, your gospel isn't good enough to live by, so you just have to do it for not give it away for nothing. It's like a kind of lost leader, I suppose." Um, And uh, Paul's saying, "No, that's not the way about. That's not the way to look at it at all. I do preach the gospel free of charge." Uh, but that's because it's valued in other ways. Um, so sometimes we do need to uh, assert Christian freedom and we need to assert that ev- we should indeed be able to um, should pay our preachers if they're doing their job properly. Um, in fact, the problem is, of course, that everything in this world is open to abuse, isn't it? so in the end if you're not careful you'll end up banning everything and then the fatherhood of God is turned into slavery it's like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son isn't it the, um, when, when the prodigal son comes back the father runs down the road to meet him and you know, lays on a feast and kills the, the fatted calf the, the thing it's like the, you know, the Christmas turkey being slaughtered early um, but the elder brother says well, look I've slaved for you all my life and you haven't even given me a, a chicken to celebrate with my friends and yet when my dissolute brother comes back you kill the, the fatted calf and the father's flabbergasted by this isn't he he says "Slave, you're not a slave you're part of the household this stuff's yours as much as it's mine but they didn't see it that way they saw it as slavery to the, he saw it as slavery to the father and he wouldn't go in to the celebration in fact these things actually require judgment and balance and you can look at some of the problems of laying down arbitrary rules actually Um, I mentioned C.T. Studd a couple of weeks ago um, one of the great missionaries of the early 20th century Um, but he actually was a very rich man, at least his father was a very rich man and left him a lot of money and he gave it away but then he wanted to go to India and he had to beg for support. Now was that the right decision? I'm sure he'd made that decision, trusting God and giving thanks to God's provision. But it did mean that um, you know, he had to depend on other people, the charity of other people, to do God's work, when perhaps if he'd kept his own money he would have been able to use it for that. So it's, these things can be tricky sometimes. Weck has always, I think, taken that position afterwards. Later, that you know that people should explicitly live by the gospel, but um, you know, but then you know you, maybe he made himself a burden on others by doing that unnecessarily. But then you could argue, yes, but these others were the Christian, rich Christian businessmen, so they were being able at least to take part in spreading the gospel vicariously. So maybe it's um, maybe it was the right decision. These things actually require a lot of judgment and thought. What we shouldn't do is say clearly it's right for Christians to give away all their money and take a vow of poverty, like Francis of Assisi did, or say that you know we need to hang on to our money because we might need it someday to put in the collection, church collection or something like that. Both of those attitudes are very wrong, aren't they? So I've, I've tried to summarise the argument here. I haven't missed. Yes. Yeah, I think I've said that. <coughs> Why is it that we need to do both these things? Well, because if we don't assert Christian freedom, then we very soon start judging each other. And we start indulging in spiritual one-upmanship, saying how much better we are because we don't, don't smoke or drink or whatever it is um, than others. And of course, if you, once you start thinking like that, you start thinking like the Pharisees. Well, if spirituality is about keeping rules, then the more spiritual, the more rules, the more spiritual. So, like somebody once described the Victorian idea of decoration—that decoration is art. So, the more decoration, the more artistic. Um, it doesn't always quite work like that, <laughs> but it's the same argument. If keeping rules is spiritual, then the more rules, the more spirituality. <laughs> and we become proud of our conservative values you know that lot down the road um, you know they, they wear a jumper to preach in but we at least wear a suit if not an actually a Geneva gown or a, or a gold vestment or something you know <laughs> and true holiness becomes replaced by legalism very easily and we make Christian life seem unattractive and slavish well not seem we make it unattractive and slavish and it's not supposed to be unattractive in that sense Of course, there are unattractive aspects of the Christian life, but they're not supposed to be made unattractive by a form of keeping a lot of rules. Indeed, of course, that's precisely the argument that Paul is arguing against in Romans. And in fact, in short, we become self-righteous and legalistic and we become Pharisees. But equally, what happens if we insist on always exploiting our freedoms in Christ always saying we have to exercise them but what happens then is that we deny or we forget that our actions impact others and we would all like to do that, the world would certainly like to do that they would like to think that what we do only affects ourselves and doesn't, doesn't matter but unfortunately that isn't true almost anything we do impacts other people and we put ourselves in the center again, ultimately. We say that our rights, our freedoms are the most important thing. Not the freedoms of Christ, not the rule of Christ, but our own rights and freedoms are at the center. Oops, sorry. Um, and we become proud of our liberal values, don't we? Look, we don't. We don't like those stupid Anglicans who know was it ecclesiastical bling? I think the Archbishop described it as. We preach in it. We preach in a nice jumper, you know. The everyday. uh, We become proud of our liberal liberal values. And freedom from sin becomes freedom to sin. Paul says that, doesn't he? Don't let your freedom become an excuse for license, an opportunity for license. One of those hymns said the same thing soon we make freedom from sin become mean freedom to sin and our distinctiveness from the world is blurred and we make the Christian life seem either hypocritical or just pointless if there's no difference what is the you know, why have the church at all that would be unnecessary and so in short we become self-righteous and worldly so either way you lead in the end you come into self-righteousness you become super spiritual you, you indulge in spiritual one-upmanship and we need to avoid both of those we do need to assert the freedom that is found in Christ and that includes certain freedoms to do certain things to enjoy the gifts that God has given um But, at the same time, we shouldn 't do that in such a way that it makes life difficult for the community, and it may well things that are good in themselves can often be abused and make life wrong for the community I an mean, Another example i heard quoted many years ago was um, uh, a married couple or indeed a couple who perhaps have just just, uh, fallen in love may want to spend all their time together. That can be difficult for their previous friends who suddenly find they're excluded from that intense relationship. Something that's good in itself, even that can have an effect on some other people and shouldn't be abused and has to be thought through carefully. There's a good example of that. as one I, I hadn't thought of before until I had it, had it pointed out to me. as many years ago, but it's a good thing. So that was my summary of this argument. Um, Paul does quite a long summary, actually, as you can say, so he talks about I became, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, but to those who did have the law, I became like one having the law. Because, you know, I'm not going to argue about a few food rules either way. You know, I'll do whatever is best to um, make the go- not get in the way of the gospel, and in fact, I've summarized Paul's I hope I've summarized Paul's conclusion here. He talks about not using rhetorical tricks um, in uh, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, but actually he does use some rhetorical well, I suppose you could call them tricks sometimes, and he does it here, actually, if you notice. there's a rather delightful series of paradoxes that he uses make his point here. He says that, um, well actually there are a lot of them but I've just uh, mentioned the first four. He says, um, well my boast, yes I, d- I have a boast, and my boast is that I've got nothing to boast about. <laughs> and he says, um, I do have a reward from preaching the Gospel. Um, my reward is that I don't take a reward, I give the grace of God away freely. And he says, um, well, I, I've com- I'm compelled to do that, actually. Um, and so if I'm compelled to do it, then in a sense I don't have a reward. I'm like the muzzled ox. But actually, I do it voluntarily as well. I do voluntarily what I'm compelled to do anyway. And because of that, I do get a reward. I get the reward that um, I can make the Gospel freely available to, to those, to, well, to anyone who will listen. And then he says, in the, and he gives lots of examples in this, in these uh, last few verses of chapter 9, but perhaps we can sum them up. He says, um, I use my freedom to make myself a slave to everyone. That is what he says, isn't it? Um, I do all the, um, uh, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Why? Well, so that I might get my reward, that I may share in its blessings. And so he says, I use my freedom to become a slave. So you can, uh, don't know whether you prefer my summary or Paul's, but <laughs> that's Paul's summary. There's the rather elegant paradoxes, and they are really rather, rather clever, actually, but uh, I think they make the point well that we boast boast we have is that we don't have anything to boast about, that everything is Christ. The reward is that we do things voluntarily for the sake of the Gospel and yet it is right also that people should be paid for it if, if that's the appropriate thing. We are compelled to preach the Gospel and yet if we do it voluntarily we get a reward. And if we don't put obstacles in the way of people then actually we're using our freedom then. We're saying I use my freedom to either to well, to to communicate with in any way possible, to save the weak or the strong, the Jew or the Gentile, slave or free. I won't put anything in the way of that. And I use my freedom to help others. So let's stop there and we'll stop by singing another finish by singing another hymn